Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host of the Nature Institute's podcast in Dialogue with Nature. Founded in 1998, the Nature Institute is a not-for-profit organization in upstate New York. We believe that to address the root causes of humanity's present-day unsustainable relation to the planet are ways of thinking about, experiencing, and interacting with the world call for radical reorientation. The need for a fundamental transformation, a shift from the abstract to the concrete, from fragmentation to contact sensitivity, from self-centered to world-centered, has never been more urgent. It is this transformation that the Nature Institute aims to serve. This podcast was recorded in December of 2021 at the Nature Institute with Enrico Holdridge, the Institute's co-founder. Enrica discusses here an essay by the German phenomenological physicist Gerhard Meyer that was published in 1970. It is concerned with the classical four elements described by the Greeks, earth, water, air, and fire, as different ways of approaching nature. What can they teach us now about science and our ways of encountering the world? This is today's topic. At the end of the podcast, I will give details of where to find Enrica's translation of Gerhard Meyer's essay. And now, on to the presentation. Enrica, to start, I see that you were the translator. That's true. So how did you come to this? I was given a rough translation from people in Australia who wanted me to look over it. And they had more or less given a literal translation, where you translate word for word. And a lot in the text was not clear to me what Georg Meyer really meant to say. So since I am a native speaker in German and I know Georg Meyer, he is one of my teachers, I went back to the original publication, which I had in my office, and in a way reworked the text that I had or rewrote it or wrote it new. So so in a way it became then a new translation where I tried to capture what Georg meant to say and he often said it not in the easiest way but I tried to say it in the, now I'm saying the American English so that it could maybe be understood. And because I think what Georg points to and wants to point to in this essay, which is actually an old essay. It has been written decades ago. What he wants to say that this is something that can guide us in our natural scientific work. Today I want to point out, now let me say honestly, to the degree that I understand him, And of course, this is always true. And you cannot even say that for a translation. You cannot translate and say in your own language what you don't understand, right? So given all that, and I might not do fully justice to the scope of what he meant to say and the fineness also, what he wanted to point to, but I can say that in the work of the Nature Institute, aspects of what he wants to say have been practiced before this text came to us. So it is not foreign to us. This is where I want to turn to this essay in that sense. I would like to encourage you, the listener now, to also take these, let's say, helpful guiding 
points of view in a way that you say, it makes sense to me, and this is how I work with it. I would like to begin with his beginning, and his beginning is actually captured in this one photo, which Craig took while I was working on the translation and he was in Donau. These are the drinking fountains that you find in Switzerland and southern Germany, drinking fountains where a water is falling into a basin and then the basin has an outlet. And you find these basins, for instance, also in the Alps, where a spring is captured through a pipe led into a trough, yeah, often a hollowed out tree, uh, and then the animals can drink from it, or also the people who hike can drink from it. So a drinking fountain. You see this drinking fountain, in this case it is one made out of stone. Georg points out that you can see already in the drinking fountain the four aspects that he tries to capture in now the classical four elements. He makes it clear in the text to whom this refers, yeah, who first spoke about it. So I leave this out, you can read it yourself. So the earth element, the water, the air and the fire element. And he points out that the earth element, in this sense, you find the, this stone basin. The stone basin, which will remain in the same place and has remained in the same place for decades. And you will come back to it again and again and find it in the same place. You can rely on it. It is that that doesn't change. So the continuity of appearance in the earth element. Next, he points out to the water. And the water in this relationship is really the water. So the water flowing into the basin and then have an overflow. So there is a relationship of how much flows over and how much flows in. And there is continuing, as flowing water obviously is, there is movement. It is when you enter into it, then it is not the same as the basin, the stone a basin that is there, but there is something, continuous movement, the element where the water's surface spreads out. Later he, he brings this picture again, the lake uh, into which rivers flow or creeks flow, and then it has an outlet, and they are all connected with the surface of the lake. And then there is another element, and that he attributes to the air. And this he says, the wind can play over the surface of this water in the basin. The clouds are mirroring themselves. The wind can blow into the incoming streaming water and push it to the side or whatever the wind does too. So you can say there are elements there is this element of continuous change, ever-changing. This drinking fountain is an ever-changing appearance also, when you take it serious. So let's say freezing over in the winter, or droplets in, in the rain uh, splashing in the water. So, so an ever-changing. If you hold on to this, one approach to the world would be you are open to the ever-changing. It's almost, you can say, counter as if these were two polarities, the ever-changing and 
the last thing in the solid. Yeah, so that we can say this. And then he has a fourth element, which became for me, when I began to get it, what he meant to say, it became really interesting and important. In the drinking fountain, he only points to it. Now I have described to you the fountain, but you haven't taken a sip of water yet. Mm. You were not thirsty, and it was there to quench your thirst, to help you. You drank, or let's say, yeah, purpose is maybe a too dry a word, but it is a drinking fountain. And when you look at this photo, you see that this was a place where the people of the village would go to fetch water. We had times when there was no running water in all the houses. So this is a place of use. And the use is the water. You go there. It's not just a whatever just means. So this where you can say the thing itself gets into action through the human being who now relates to the thing in this way of the deed. And this deed element comes later in another example. So John, did that give you a picture to begin with? Yes, and it was very satisfying because even though I read the text a couple of times, the picture was more comprehensive for me and more dynamic in, mm-hmm. your, in your narration. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that and also this aspect of the deed, yeah. the human participation. The fire element. Yeah, the fire yeah, element. The approach exactly. to fire. Yeah. Yes, and I think yeah. that is the most mysterious each time I read it. Yeah, in the very end of his essay, he will point out that this is actually the one where we as human beings need to awaken, where we carry responsibility, mm-hmm. where we enter into creative action, which mm-hmm. we know, of course, we are doing. We are yes. changing the world. Yes. Yeah, and with what consciousness do we do that? When you take so far what I spoke, when Georg now says, I now want to use these to teach me that I, as a human being, am embedded, this is the first sentence, I'm embedded in the world in different layers. Being embedded in the world in the layer of the solid. And now you can say, this is such a big topic, we could really look for examples or realities, where is this really doing? But he begins by saying, when you look at a thing as a solid, a thing maybe also has the other layers, but we are now looking at the thing as a solid. You can come back to it. You can return it. it the solid means the non-changing. Solids are not, do not interpenetrate. You can really make a study of what is are the properties, also the physical properties of the solids. Yeah, Solid meaning lasting, a duration, shape, also rest. The things are at rest. Think of a stone. The solid you can take into your study, put on your desk, and study at your ease. And it is only your own, let's say, negligence or whatever, when you miss certain details. But there are the details you try to describe it in its fullness. So how it is now, what what you didn't look at, but I'm, I'm saying now, so think of a cup, cup we are having here and uh, on our desk and some rocks so many solids are actually spread out around us and um, you are not asking how is the cup coming about because there was shaping and you needed certain materials that through firing took on hardness shape that 
has duration. So you're leaving out certain aspects and you refer to this thing in its being a solid. Let's say that way. When I listen to the language that Craig often uses in his writings, he refers to this way of relating to the world as object thinking. Objectifying, making something an object, which also implies, and Georg points to it, that I am separated from it and it is outside of me, which clearly the cup is, and I can take the, let's say, research attitude of the onlooker. So I'm outside, separated, I am an onlooker, the thing I can come to any time I like. So these are attitudes, you could say, of when I approach a thing as an object or as a solid, in, in, as the earth element in Georg's classical terms. And that, for certain approaches and things, is the proper approach, I would say, or is one aspect of a proper approach, there might be others. But if this is the only approach available to everything, you can pretty soon see that this is not okay. And the next element that teaches you, and in our courses actually we do learn it from that element, is the water. So in the water element, and now you have to always understand it is about our embeddedness in the world. It's not now that we necessarily study water. Yeah, our embeddedness in the world. But what does the water tell us? So as much as I gather what he means to say when he comes now in his describing again in his example to the lake, so there is the where, so where the water leaves the lake, the where and its level, and then the whole lake in its, you can say, how high the water has risen above the shores or below the normal shores, whatever the situation is, and the input. So there is a lawful, these are my words, relationship between the water flowing in and the water flowing out. So when you think of many things, let's say how one change brings about another change. You think of the sun warming the rock. The air above the rock is rising. We sometimes see it on hot roads with this flimmering that we see. When you think of it that now we become aware not of a enduring shape or something, but movement, how one movement brings about another movement. And you can say a lot of our studies have to do with that you understand the relationships, that you see the things in relationship. The one he describes as the onlooker embeddedness in the world, the other he says I am going to the river. I am going to the creek. So the creek is not something you can bring into your desk. Yeah, you can say this famous word, you cannot go to the same river twice. Of course, you can go to the same riverbed twice, but the water has flown on, right? And it is new water that you actually step into every moment. So this fluidity of the world, and I think in the plant growth world, we are already entering that. I, in my own now totally different area of study and, and teaching, 
in my geometry work, I make it a point that you think all these forms in transformations. So always not the fixed triangle, but the all the triangles, yeah, meaning yeah, not a particular shape, but the moving triangle. So the movement. So maybe for the time being, this is good enough. And now we come to the third, the embeddedness as the air. So approaching the world through the air. And for a long time, and I must say into the last week, this was the greater riddle of the four. I had a hard time to find a door to where it made sense to me, where I could say, oh yeah, here in my own practice I can say this is air element. So I had some ideas and then also in my conversation with Craig, he pointed out certain things. This is the element, I must say, where Georg says the least in his essay. He doesn't point it out so much as he does with the water part, for instance. And the solid part is relatively easy, you can say. With the air element, the one clue his text gave me was that he says, we are not separated from the surrounding air. We ourselves take air in and breathe air out. So there is not the least possibility to be an onlooker. <laughs> yeah, the, the cup is outside there and it will remain there. Yeah, when you come back, it's still sitting on your desk. Lawful relationships, fine. But now the air, when you think of the air, and now I'm really thinking of the atmosphere, you cannot say that there is a portion of air that belongs to a particular place. You can at least say our creek here belongs to the valley. But a piece of air, it doesn't make sense. So there is not American air and Brazilian air or Pacific air and Atlantic air or something. Yeah, of course, we know it's very differentiated in the world, but you cannot make a compartment of it. You cannot say unless you make a body of air by enclosing it into a container, put pressure on it or whatever you do with it. That's a different story. But I now speak of the air that we all share. We all breathe from so we take it in, so it allows us to live. So the lungs is a mysterious place when you think of what happens there so that we can be alive. And we give off a different type of air, so lightly altered, and breathe it out, which is then being again received by the atmosphere. And we all breathe in the same. So no separation. This gave me a little bit of a clue, and I will... Follow that in one line of thought. But first, when he referred to the fountain and said the ever-changing, and at the end he again describes this air element as this unceasing transformation. In a way you can say, when the world is in unceasing transformation, no moment repeats itself. Every moment is its moment. We have very clear areas where this is true. One is, you can say, the weather, all the weather phenomena, weather pattern, that certain events can happen. You need a whole, you can say, I call it performance, like a artistic performance where you need many 
musical instruments playing together or you need a whole synchronized way of moving among dancers or whatever you you can think of it is a constellation of many many things and this can happen maybe 12 years ago so we had a weather pattern here where the rain fell the moment it hit hard ground so let's say a tree or the uh, ground it turned into ice and everything was iced over and the trees broke of the the weight of the ice that formed over many hours so only a very small corridor Or you think of the ever-changing cloud, if you live in a country where there is cloud formation, and clouds are forming and also dissolving. Lots of my observations in clouds, I focus on places where the cloud disappears. When it disappears there, you can enter into that and understand a little bit that for a cloud to be a cloud, there's a whole constellation of air humidity, air pressure, air temperature for the droplet formation to be possible. All that is traveling with a cloud, you can say. And when that changes, the cloud might dissolve, for instance. Craig pointed out when I asked him about his air idea, to be as a researcher, if you like, but I would encourage and say, as a human being, be present when these events, the events happen. So it's event-like. The world is event-like. Craig had a beautiful event of this type last week when he took a walk and he came to a part of the forest where in that moment the oak trees released their leaves in that 10 minutes where he watched. And he watched how delicately, differently, every single leaf fell down from its height, high up. The different types of movement. So in a way you can say a performance. Yeah, I, I say a performance. So be ready for the events. Now I add a little more to this air element. You can see it becomes important now. Yeah, it becomes important. So we are not separated from the atmosphere, from the air. We breathe it in, we breathe it out. I saw, when I contemplated this question, there is an element in our work where you need to stop feeling separation. Otherwise, you are not realizing this embeddedment. And in our language, in our, let's say, short language, shortening language, we then speak of qualities. I take an example uh, to make it a little more clear. So so let's take the example of a morning with dewdrops, a cool spring morning where, and and we, we have experienced these mornings and we have also done plant flower work and so where certain flowers open. So just think this. So take this in as refreshing, dew, early, morning, sunrise. These are all qualities. When you speak of qualities, you are engaging with your human interior, if I may say it that way. The more common word for this was with your soul life. You are engaging in what's spreading out around you. And a lot of our work that we do here, and I see it in Craig's work, for instance, has to do that you take in the world 
take in. So you take observation and then let your observations ripen <clears throat> to the level of it becomes qualitative. It becomes a qualitative experience. For me, this is true in my work in optics with light and color and darkness. When I enter into this, for instance, that what turbidity means in relation to the sun, if you like, that the sunlight is being darkened, so the blinding brightness becomes milder to a yellowing light and maybe even to a reddish light, and you can fully look into the sun without any harm to your eyes. That can become qualitative, doesn't have to, but it can become qualitative. And what matter then means, or darkening matter then means, the words themselves might not be able to say it, but if you allow it, the words indicate something, yeah, point to something, they don't say it all. So I'm only trying to point out certain areas. Or when a painter can say the different reds that I work with are of different qualities. Think of a brown red, a brownish red, or a bluish red, or a orange red, or a deep, warm, dark red. So these are different qualities. So you can, as a scientist, refuse to enter into that. And then I would say you have refused to enter. Now I'm using Maya's word, if I understand him right. You have refused to enter into your air embeddedness of the world where you are not separated. I think this is actually the place where we need to work as civilization or as culture. As, as modern societies, I would say, not so, not so much maybe in ancient times when we were embedded in the world in a more immediate way and didn't reflect so much, didn't separate ourselves so much. Practicing this means I form my own, and I'm using now this word, my own interior, my own inner being, my own soul life. It becomes differentiated it becomes fuller, it becomes more alive. I think this is clear when you enter into this, yeah? I do have actually events in my life where I would say this was really heightened and a clear gift. I was present when this and this happened, when this event happened, I was present. And this can be a social event where we can also be very sleepy and not notice what, let's say, your grandchild in this moment offers to you. Or, or your child, or your partner, or your friends, or your colleagues. But it can also be being out in the world, so in nature. And then when you think of, I was there when this happened. You know, picture this, there are things happening around you all the time. It's only our preoccupation with our own worries, where we are not the witness we could be. I call it now witnessing. In a, in a way, you could, could say it that maybe. So this is this. And then the last, approaching the fire through the fire, and there is actually it becomes serious. So Georg, and after he has said many things, and some of the things that I, I said, uh, referred to now too, he one more time wants to give an example, and he takes the example of the candle, the burning candle. It's clear that 
especially when you study, let's say, uh, Michael Faraday's The Candle, then you understand that in the solid candle, the solid with the wick, the moment you light it, the melting, the fluid, the, the water element, then in the rising in the wick, and then for the candle to burn, so a transformation into the, the vapor, the wax vapor, like yeah, water evaporates, so um, wax vapor, and so you, you have all these three already in, in front of you. And then, this was interesting for me, when you speak about the solid wax, the fluid wax, wax vapor, as I just did, you are still in the element of the earth. You are speaking of parts. In order to enter into the fluid approach to the candle, you now pay attention to how the different processes relate to each other. So if there is a too large a wick, if the, it can be that the flame in relation to the melting wax is in a relation so that we have a dripping candle. He refers to that. He has been a candle observer, you can tell. He knew how to, how to handle candles, and he must have loved candles. Or you watch the movement within the fluid wax, within this bowl that the candle forms. So all that, then you're in the fluid element. I leave out now the air element, which means you now place the candle in its context. The candle illumines. Yeah, it shines. It can be seen from all the places that it shines onto. And then the fourth element. The fourth element is not that the candle flame is also flame and it's hot. It is the deed of the candle. And he says for us it might be hard in a culture, civilization, where the function of the candle nowadays is not quite the same as it was. There were traditions where around a certain time you would make the candles which would serve you to light your cottages. It got dark at five o'clock. And what is it that you now have? You hear in at least the old stories, they were knitting or spinning at candlelight. You, you might remember these stories, right? So the candle as a deed, illuminating your space so that you can perform what you want to perform. We here in America do have sometimes uh, this experience of the candles when electricity goes out, which happens. And you are very glad that when you have not only maybe a flashlight, but you have a candle at hand and you can illumine the spaces that you want to walk through and live in during those hours of no power. And I'm sure there are countries where people know this much better than we do. So this deed element, and this deed element brings Georg to say this approaching fire through fire means readiness in action, which means in full mindfulness you do what you do. I mean, we, we are active and creative all the time, but whether our deeds are being carried with our deep understanding of what we mean to do an understanding of what we are working into, that is, is to be questions. Yeah? Maybe, maybe we all can say yes, once in a while, 
I am at that place. Yeah, I know what I am doing. I know what I want to do. And it is an agreement to the world I am working into. I'm not separated from it. I'm not an onlooker. It's not only there are known lawfulnesses. It's also not only the world is an event. I am participating in the event. You understand? He says, in this, our humanness is arsed the most. Because here we have to step up. And all that we refer to as responsibility, you can ask, what does that mean? Responsibility, response. But there is more than response. It's not an outer authority asking you, what did you do? Give me a justification. There is really your inner creativity, you are, in your humanity, able to do something. And you do it wisely, in agreement and in gratefulness and in reverence and in warmth, let's say. Mm. Warmth. (laughs) The element of fire, yeah? What I find so compelling is the continuity in your narration. You went from one stage to the next, and I could follow the transformations. And as you said, two things were going on simultaneously. There were the pictures that were arising through your narration. And then, as you said, it wasn't in the words themselves. It was through the words that I could make sense of these relationships And the relationships are not things. They're not even quite qualities in the way that we're forming them right here, in the way that I mean it now. And the clarity that there are, as he says, different ways of knowing, different ways to approach the world, and that each is more encompassing and more involving as we go from Earth to air. Yes. Right? And then the one that... I think is uniquely human is the deed, mm-hmm. the conscious deed. Mm-hmm. And to understanding the relationships of the first three, earth, water, air, and understanding right. those relationships, I can understand the consequences of my deeds mm-hmm. and make a choice. And as he says, fire and fire is irreversible. Once it's done, it's done. And to take that seriously as a human, as you said it in one way, is the task of our time. Right. He gives one, you could almost say, an admonition to the Mm. scientist. Mm. So don't stand next to your experiments with your hands in your pockets, Mm. other words, as the just mildly interested onlooker. Mm. I mean, you might be very interested in the outcome of your experiment. But it is, as you said, an irreversible deed. So our deeds in doing science, our deeds in shaping our understanding of the world in relation to our embeddedness. And when when he says, first sentence of his, these are four ways of embeddedness in the world. This does not mean that one time I'm embedded or or some people are embedded only as as the earth element or so. No, but it means the task is to bring consciousness to these various ways of being embedded. Unconsciously, we are all embedded in all four ways. Is the modern 
tasks yeah, of development, you can say, that we need to become conscious of what we otherwise are unconscious and also could mess up because of that. Yeah, we could muddle it up. Yes, yes. Or we could also be not not open to what comes towards us in a very helpful way. So not only this admonition and punishment, but also what nurtures us by being open and not cutting us off as the onlooker scientist. And so maybe the concluding Mm -hmm. sentence, all the listeners I would encourage to read it's a very short essay, in, mm-hmm. in a sense, yeah? These few pages, read them and see whether they see and understand aspects I have not mentioned or mm-hmm. I have overlooked mm-hmm. also. But then also make it their own, because this is what I think, and actually Georg emphasized often in his later mm-hmm. speeches and work. It is biographical, what the one person can do the other person cannot do, meaning you can't do this. It, it's meaning you are unique. What the world wants from you and you can give is yours to do. Take it bio, biographical. Take your own life serious. Take you yourself serious. Yeah, we can say that. We can say that, and I want to leave it at that. Good. Thank you very much, Anika. <laughs> You're welcome. You can find and download the translation of Gehrig Meyer's essay that we discussed today as a PDF version from our website, natureinstitute.org. On our homepage, go to the Resources tab, choose Science and Math Education, and then click on the section Being on Earth, where you'll find Meyer's name linked to a collection of his works, including the classical four elements as different ways of approaching nature. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us at info at natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. Thanks for listening.